Welcome to the New Age Sage podcast. Today's guest is Mike Segun. He is a somatic coach. We talk about how to get in touch with your body and his experience coming out while growing up deeply religious. I hope you love it. Please leave a review if you liked it. Thank you so much. Enjoy. Mike, pleasure Hi. having you on. Um, let's start with uh, getting people familiarized with what you do uh, with your men's work and, and stuff. So what is it that you're focused on right now in, in your work? Yeah, so my line of work is body-based. So mm -hmm. I do somatic work with men, trauma healing. Um, my passion is helping men heal traumas stored in their body. Um, and my passion is in creating community for these men, helping men create community with other men in their lives. And so the work I do is one-on-one -on -one coaching, um, but I also do online and virtual programs. And then I run uh, men's retreats, in-person men's retreats. What's the, the main trauma you notice in the men you work with? That's a great question, man. <laughs> it, it runs a gamut, you know. Um, I, more recently, um, there's been a lot of um, like isolation and loneliness, like abandonment from parents, mm -hmm. primarily from moms or dads. Um, but then also like abandonment from like communities, right? people that grow up in communities and feel isolated from, they just feel different. Um, and there's a lot of men that, uh, that I'm seeing today who have never had any male role models in their mm -hmm. life. And I, I can totally like, like I, I feel lucky that I have in my childhood, I grew up with several males in my life, some adults in my life that, really loved me and cared for me, but all my friends either didn't have father figures in their home or didn't have any big brothers or male mentors in their life. And um, I think there's an abandonment feeling that comes from that. And that trauma is so deep um, in men. And I think that brings men to isolation, to loneliness, to not feeling enough, not feeling worthy in this world. Um, those are big traumas that I see, but I also see every few clients, every other retreat, sexual abuse comes up. And um, sexual abuse by uh, someone in their family, and oftentimes it's another male in their family. Mm. Um, and the statistic is like one in six, but those are reported, right? I think what we're seeing is actually one in three men have been sexually abused or sexually assaulted sometime in their life. And so that's a big aspect of what I'm seeing these days is guys really yeah, owning it. And it's right? not, it's not encouraged in the, in the culture nowadays. If you're, you know, a stereotypical macho or, or masculine man's man, that that could be the, the worst thing you could imagine to admit that you've been, you know, molested as a, as a kid. Well, and that's part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's also, um, this aspect, you know, if, if young boys are being sexually abused or sexually assaulted by women, yeah. There's a almost like a good for you, yeah. right? Yeah. There's a celebration that comes from it, even though there's so much hurt and pain underneath that. And so when young men or boys get assaulted by women, they there's a conflict. There's an internal yeah. conflict. Like this is, I felt unsafe. I feel harmed. But yet everyone around me is celebrating that kind of behavior. And so how do we reconcile that, right? Do I say great, good for me? Or do I actually acknowledge the hurt and pain uh, that happened from that experience? Yeah, I noticed that. And where I'm from, Ecuador, it's, a, it's super common, more than you'd think, for 
like men around 13 to to have sex with their basically housekeeper it's like a common thing in, in in south america and when you talk to them about it it's like they it's like, oh yeah it's a normal thing it's cool just like you kind of feel in their body it's like, you know there's this this line but it's a it's a common common thing right right and that's like you know the cultural the culture normalizes that right and then it's interesting because here in america if that were to happen to a girl everyone would be up in arms about that mm-hmm. it that, that does happen but for whatever reason our culture around masculinity our culture around manhood sexual abuse from a woman almost becomes like this rites of passage mm-hmm. for men and that's not a great it's not a rites of passage that's yeah. abuse yeah. it's assault mm-hmm. it's trauma yeah. it's hurt um and so there's a lot of work that we need to do around this around one helping young boys say no right create the boundary in themselves to feel that anger within their body and say this is not right but also to remove this identity that um being sexually abused from a woman or by a female um is okay because it's not okay it's not and we see that like do you remember when um there's that like 10 year old student who was having an affair with his 20 something year old teacher Ten? and it, yeah. Ten? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. This was like maybe yeah. 25, 30 years ago. And there was a huge, huge like report on it. It was like worldwide news around this. He got her pregnant. They had the kid. She, mm-hmm. Damn. she served time. Um, and then, you know, th- there were some spaces that were like, wow, like he's like a strong boy for doing that. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that is not the right message. It's not the message that we need to send young boys that in order for us to become men, we need to have sex. Yeah, that's why I've had this conversation many times on the podcast that in indigenous tribes, I've had many masculine teachers say that, you know, in, in indigenous tribes, there's like a rite of passage for men yes. to become men. And that I make the point that nowadays that rite of passage has become losing virginity. Like yes. for me, that was like what my culture in high school, American high school was like, that was when I became a man. I was 16 and I was the first out of my friends to, to like lose my virginity. I felt, I felt like, I felt like the man, but obviously now in retrospect, like that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't mean shit. Right. So to you, how does, what's the best way for a man to become a man? Yeah, that's, I mean, I think culturally there's, so we have these different milestones when we get older, yeah. right? A milestone is we get our driver's license. Milestone is we graduate high school. A milestone is we turn 21. A milestone is we, um, uh, we graduate college, but there aren't any like tribal primal, um, milestones or, um, uh, rites of passage that we have in our culture these days. We just don't. And I think in this modern age, I think a beautiful rites of passage for us is really coming into our own and figuring mm-hmm. out who we are with the right support, like other mentors in our life. My rites of passage, my, I consider my rites of passage the moment that I came out. Okay. When was that? It was in 2011. It was 12, about 12 years ago. How old I was you? 23. 23. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what was, what was, um, causing that delay? First religion. Okay. I was raised in a fundamentalist Christian church. Oh, wow. And um, their first sin that they taught us was homosexuality. That's how they interpreted the Bible. And so for my, every since I could 
acknowledge my sexual identity and my attraction to men or other boys, I um, thought I was a sinner and I thought I was sick. And so I carried so much shame with me for over a decade. And um, this was in 2011. And so, you know, things were pretty progressive in 2011, especially in the Bay Area where I come from. You know, oftentimes, often saw men holding hands, be intimate in public. Um, but it was this aspect where I felt like I was going to go to hell or that I was going to be sick or I was sick. I had a devil spirit in me that stopped me from actually coming out. And, um, I was in college and I was like learning all of this incredible stuff about our history. I was learning, uh, I took an anthropology class. And so I was like learning about evolution and dinosaurs. And, um, it was in that class where I started to question, like, why don't we ever talk about that in the Bible? Like, why don't we ever talk about that in church? Why don't we talk about dinosaurs? Why don't we talk about evolution? Um, and then also at the same time, same time, I was taking a world religions class and we were studying all of the religions of the history. And then we were studying one century and it was like, you know, this was where Buddhism was. This is where Judaism was. This is where Roman Catholicism was. Like, this is where Christianity was. Like, all of these religions spanning a century that were happening at the same time. And it clicked in my head. And I was just like, what makes me believe what I believe is truth? If all of these people in this century believed what they believed was true, what makes me believe what I believe is true? And so I started to question myself, started to question my identity. And um, it was a moment where I go, well, what if everything I believe is false? And what if I'm not a sinner? What if I'm not sick? What if I'm just gay? And what if that's okay? And so um, after several months of contemplation, I finally came out. And it was the hardest time of my life. My worst fear happened, right? My worst fear is like, people are going to abandon me. People aren't going to love me. And that happened. People in my church completely abandoned me. My mom abandoned me. My uncle abandoned me. He was like my father growing up, abandoned me, didn't talk to me, still haven't talked to me. It's been 12 years. And it was a moment for me to really come into my own. And luckily I had two male mentors in my life, Kevin Lassett um, and in a college professor, Todd Ormsby. Todd Ormsby was an openly gay man. And um, he basically sent me all these resources and was like, I'm here for you. Like, I know what it's like to come out, especially from a religion. Um, let me support you in this. And then my mentor, when I came out to him, the first thing that he said to me was, I'm proud of you. Whereas every, my uncle, and my mom were all in denial, sent me scripture and verse. And Kevin said, I'm proud of you. How can I help you? How can I serve? And so that was the moment where I went, oh, okay. This is what it's like to be on my own. This is what it's like to be independent of thought. This is what it's like to create my own life. And then this is also what it's like to dictate my life, to create the life that I want. And so um, I really believe that was my coming of age. And I think for many men, it's something different, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's like, Call it whatever you want, like come to Jesus moment, your aha moment, your rock bottom moment. Yeah. It's like these moments in our lives that um, are significant for our growth, 
where we get to finally step into something different. Yeah. This is like our introduction to being a man. Yeah. Yeah. I've often said that to me, mask, being a good man just means understanding and owning who you are without shame, full, full acceptance. Yes. And the journey towards that is the journey towards being a man. But I want to go back in your, thank you for sharing, by the way, um, yeah. into your journey that what was it like growing up with all that, that shame? Like how, how do you reckon with that in the moment? How did you analyze that? How did you deal with yourself in those moments, especially in your later teen years, when you're yeah. raging hormones, you know, 16, 17. Like what, what was that like? <laughs> I mean, man, well, first it was a struggle. Like many late nights of me crying and praying because that's all I knew what to do. What were you praying for? Praying for healing. From being gay? For being gay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, asking God, why me? Like, why, why did, why was I chosen to go through this test? Um, and then a lot of alcohol. Uh, I was introduced to alcohol at a really young age. Um, when I was, uh, 10, I had my first alcoholic drink and felt the first time of feeling buzzed. Uh, at 12, I threw up for the first time from alcohol. Mm. Uh, and at 16, I had alcohol poisoning for the first time where my cousin had to wake me up and I was vomiting in my sleep. I could have choked on my, on my vomit. And, um, and it was a period in my life, especially in my teens where I just wanted to numb anything that I can do porn came into my life, right? And hormones, right? Like any moment that I had to watch porn, I will watch porn and I would jerk off. Mm -hmm. Completely like get my mind off of this, feel pleasure over and over and over again because my internal state was was so hurt, was in so much pain. Um, and then alcohol became this substance where I can forget things, but I can also... Um, forget who I was and then also say whatever I wanted. And so that was, um, it was a really dark time and a spiral. And so after I had that moment of, um, where I got alcohol poisoning, I kind of like woke up from that, but I wasn't, I still wasn't courageous enough to come out. And so my college years were pretty, um, I look back at that, those times and I cringe. <laughs> like really cringe. Um, I had, was in a party scene, you know, did a lot of drugs, drank a lot of alcohol. It was like alcohol every single day in college. And then the weekends we'd introduce cocaine and <laughs> we do cocaine all weekend and then drink our, our minds off. And, um, and in that party scene, there's, it's a big hookup culture. And I, I would hang out with a bunch of straight guys, right? So you were, you weren't out at this point. I was not okay. out yet. I was not out yet. Um, but I was also, you know, part of that culture and part of like being part of the tribe was you go pick women up and you bring them home. And so that's what I was doing. I was sleeping with women. What was that like when you were inauthentic having sex with a woman and you had no desire to do it? Inauthentic. Like it felt, um, uh, it felt fake. It was really hard for me. Um, it was, um, it was also like, I felt a lot of shame because I knew that I didn't love them. I knew that I wasn't interested in them, but I would play these games like men would do. And I would like lure them in, right. And like gain their trust and then start this relationship with them and then completely break their hearts out of the blue. 
just be like, I'm done. Make up some dumb excuse. Like I'm focused on school. What were you presenting? Like, what, what was the archetypal person you're trying to be? Like, who were you presenting yourself as to the world? And what was really going on inside? Like, what was the character you were playing? Yeah, it was the party starter. It was the, um, the jock, the athlete. Mm. And then it was also the, um, like the macho masculine. These like three archetypes where I'm like, this is what it means to be a man right now, you know, and, um, and what, where I felt a lot of shame too, was I also was experimenting with men underneath. And so I would engage, engage in very risky sexual situations. I'd hop on Craigslist, man. And like, hop okay, on so you're, you're doing that covertly while, while being totally. That. Yeah. What, what was that feeling like? If, like if I got caught, if someone found out? Oh my God. That was in the back of your mind too? Oh my God. Fear. Mm-hmm. Complete fear. But that was also the part of me that I loved. There's like this adrenaline that came from this, mm-hmm. right? There's also like the secrecy of like, this is happening beneath the scenes um, that felt really good in my body to do things like that. Um, and so I was like go, bringing women home, having sex with women. And then they would leave and then I would hop on Craigslist and then I would like search the ads for someone to hook up with after that. And I would meet them in like their hotel rooms. I would meet them at their homes and it just felt so scary, right? Like looking back now, I'm like, that was, that was really, really risky behavior to just hop into a stranger's house that you didn't know. You don't have a picture of, you don't know what they look like and you have sex with them. But it was in those moments where I started to realize like, this is actually what my body wants. How how was that for you when you were... And putting on this persona and this presentation, you finally got into a room where you could be yourself in that situation. Well, that's still carried on into those rooms. Oh, so you're still being the, the macho persona in those rooms. Totally. Okay. How, totally. How did that feel? Because you were like getting a bit of what you were. What was that like? It felt, um, in, in, in those moments, it felt really normal to me. Okay. You know, like it just felt like it, I had been doing that for years, like most of my life putting on a mask. Most of these years, I've been putting on this persona that I'm this straight man, this straight guy, denying my sexuality. And um, it felt uh, normal. And it also felt like numbing. Like I was, that wasn't me. You know. What did it take for you to finally come out? What was the breaking point? Yeah. Um, to be like, I can't do this shit anymore. Yeah. And so I was in that world religions class that I was just talking about. And, um, it was a three hour class and I had the, the year prior, there was always like this voice in my head, like you're gay. No, you're not gay. You're gay. No, you're not gay. You're gay. No, you're not gay. And I finally just had it, man. I knew it actually just started off with me saying that I'm leaving the church. I'm going to find a more humanistic church, a more accepting church. Um, and this was like my coming out to my mom. Like I'm coming out as like Christian, but like not this kind of Christian. I'm a different kind of Christian. And so there was this internal piece of me that felt constriction like this. <gasps> and I felt tense all the time. I felt, um, uh, distracted all the time. I felt dissociated all the time. And, um, I also knew deep down that I wasn't being myself. And so, um, that evening I called my mom 
And I was just kind of like, she, she was the first person you told. She was the first person I told. Yeah. And I just kind of grilled her on the Bible and about our beliefs on Christianity, beliefs in heaven. Started to grill her about the dinosaurs and, the, and evolution. And, um, she was just like, why are you asking me all these questions? And it just came out. I said, mom, I think I'm gay. And, um, there's both simultaneous, this feeling of like a, a relief, like, whoa, I said it. I finally said it. And then there's also this feeling like, oh, fuck, mm -hmm. what did I just say? And my world just completely flipped that upside down. How'd she react? She was silent for a really long time. Um, and then I started crying mm -hmm. and, um, asking if she was there and she just could not say anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and she was kind of dumbfounded. She kind of like kind of came into it and she was like, this is just a phase. Like, I think you're just infatuated with men. Like, how do you know that you're gay? Um, and she's like, I think you're going to grow out of this and then I'm going to pray for you. I know what you need to do right now is you need to call your uncle who is a leader in our church and you need to figure this out and we need to just all pray for you right now. Um, and so, um, it was a reaction that it, it wasn't what I wanted, right? It was a complete rejection, complete abandonment. And I was, while there was relief, there was also this, oh my God, what did I just do? I just tore my world apart and, um, felt alone. It was the very first time in my life that I actually knew what loneliness felt like and abandonment felt like. Um, and I was heartbroken. Uh, and then I called my uncle the following day, kind of grilled him the same things, asked the same question. And I came out to him, same response, complete silence. And this, what this tore me up the most because my, my uncle was my father growing up, like looked up to him. We hung out every day, talked on the phone every day. And, um, he gave me scripture, gave me verse. And then I was just like, all I need from you is I just need to know that you love me. And he goes, he says, Mike, I'll never not love you. I'll always love you. And he hung up the phone and I haven't talked to him since it's been 12 years since I've talked to him. Um, and that's the moment where I felt, wow, I don't have my shit together. Like this world is cruel <laughs> and now I'm alone. And now I'm by myself and now I got to figure this out. But from there, did you, how, did you keep up that persona? How did you treat life after that? Did you yeah. immediately be like, tell all your friends or what was the, oh, the next no. steps? Okay. No way, man. Like I, I went back into the closet. Okay. I was like, okay, I'm not saying anything to anyone. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. You know, like, okay. I like said the most vulnerable thing that I've been holding in my entire life. And now I'm going to come back in. And, um, I, I waited a few, a, f a few days and, um, the mentor that I was talking about, Kevin Lassett, uh, I called him up and he was the first person that said, I'm proud of you, but it was also just not enough for me to start coming out to my friends. And it took me about a, a six months to a year and a half to really come out to everyone in my life. Um, slowly came out to people that I trusted. Uh, and then this was a period that first six months where, um, 
I felt depression like I've never felt depression before. Um, I felt panic attacks. Um, I felt insomnia. Um, and uh, drug use started to increase more, primarily around ecstasy. Ecstasy was like my go-to drug where it felt like, oh, yes, like this is what love feels like mm -hmm. in my body. Um, this is what love feels like with people. Like I feel totally accepted in these spaces. Um, and also really deep and dark suicidal ideation. Um, contemplated suicide for months and months and months. And it wasn't really until I started to come out to my friends and my friends were just like, all right. <laughs> Like, we love you. We get you. That's okay. Where I started to finally own my sexuality and own, own who I was as a gay man. Yeah, it's that symbolic death in the way. Like, I can't relate my experience being nearly as hard as yours, but just to kind of find some common ground in that. I, I was a drug addict. Uh, I was numb and constant. I was a party boy. I was the playboy, frat boy. And it was because it was that split in who I truly was, very very sensitive, emotional, you know, uh, in touch with my feminine side, very yes. spiritual. Um, but I was presenting this like touch. I still have that side of me too, but it was a very tough, macho like player. And that discrepancy drove me to just be depressed, suicidal, yeah. um, drugs. What I learned in, in retrospect is that symbolically, like that version of me had to die. Yes. Like that version of me had to be, you know, beautifully in, in it, just put away. Um, so the new me could rise. I'm sure that was your experience too in some way that that journey was like the the slow death of that old version of you so you can come out and, and be you know who you really were. Yeah, I had a teacher once tell me, every buried seed must succumb to a pressure and darkness it cannot see before emerging into the light. Mm -hmm. And that was my darkness, man. Like compounded in the ground. Like dark pressure, didn't know what to do. And my the, my son, my nutrients were like, my was my community. It was like feeling accepted again. One, I wasn't accepting myself my entire life. And so I needed a community to say, I accept you and say, you belong with us. It's okay for me to merge into that and become mm. who I am today, which is this beautiful flower, right? I'm blooming. I'm like taking in the sun. I'm drawing people in. I'm, people are attracted to me because I, I got to be in that pressure. So you're, you're arguing that because i think the common notion in this you know strange self-help space is that like, it's an internal job to you know accept yourself first like internally straight up but what you're saying is that it's almost better or, or the right way to do it is to seek community that accepts you and in that process that mirror and that reflection you can then learn to accept yourself yeah, i think it goes hand in hand yeah right i think part of it is you know just like what you're saying you had to acknowledge that party boy in you I had to acknowledge this party boy in me. I had to acknowledge a part of me that was numbing. I had to acknowledge a part of me that was hurt and um, afraid. And for me, it was less about like saying goodbye. It was more about like, what can I do for you? Mm -hmm. How can I serve you more? Right? Like what is missing in your life? What's missing? What were you needing that you're not, that you weren't getting? And how can I provide that for you? And for me in my journey, it was really about like seeing all these different parts. I don't know if you're familiar with IFS, internal family systems, yeah. right? Seeing all these parts in many ways were my heroes, right? The party boy in me was a hero to me, right? The drugs were a healer, he hero to me. These are parts where that came out.
because I needed to feel safe in some kind of community. Yeah. Right. And, um, and so my work has been acknowledging all these different parts and saying, I love you. Thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for being a hero in my life. What do you need? And then like, let's bring you into the whole. And sometimes these parts come up again. Right? How, how do you manage that in that? Does that, let's say that younger 15, 16 year old version of you, who's, you know, doing all that traumatic, deeply traumatic experience. How does that side of you come up in, in your own psyche? And how do you, how have you learned to deal with it? Or does it still come up? Mm. Let me tap back into that 15 or 16 year old and what he was like. That 15 and 16 year old was really afraid of conflict. He wanted to be like, he was a big people pleaser. Mm -hmm. And, um, that 15 and 16 year old comes up sometimes today. You know, the part of me that is like, doesn't want to, that can't say no. The part of me that like, um, doesn't know how to set boundaries. The part of me that like, um, you know, in my early twenties, it would be like, okay, I'm hungover right now. And I know that I can't do any more drugs or drink anymore, but here's a line of cocaine and here's a beer and saying like, okay, fine. Like, if you want me to, like, I'll do that because you're going to like me more. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that came out a lot during that period. Yeah. Um, and today it's, um, I get to manage him a little more. I mean, there's, there's times where that 15, 16 year old is like, you know, we could people please right now because this is a safe space to people please. And like, there's something that we can gain from this, from people pleasing, right? Um, and there's a lot of times where I just need to ask him to step aside. Like, I see you. I know that you want to come in here. I know that you want to be liked, but the best thing to do right now to stay integrity to yourself is actually to say no or to say back up or to say, I don't want to do that right now or to say, um, I need to take care of myself mm -hmm. right now. In, in your you know, journey, you know, I've dealt with my own shame my own sexual shame I, I experimented i'm straight but i experimented with with uh like boys mm -hmm. sexually as a kid and yeah. you know i was tough for me is that i took the approach it was like i told my parents they didn't they kind of like didn't they just ignored it right and then i was like i think i was eight so i had like i had no idea what was going on like I, it was gay wasn't talked about when yes. I, you know, so i was just like yeah. oh, what is this so i just lived with that shame and i was straight so this is a strange thing i was uh like i'm not gay and all this stuff and it was what i'm saying that is that I basically tied sex with shame. Like I got addicted to porn and jerking off and then I'd like do it because then I'd finish watching. I'd be ashamed of myself. Mm -hmm. And then I'd, when I started having sex, I'd finish too fast. And then I'd be like ashamed. So I started seeing that like shame and sex were so linked that for me to actually have a healthy sexual life, I had to just learn to release that shame. What I'm asking that is with the amount of shame in your body, it's an experience. How did you release it? How did you actually get rid of the shame? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The antidote to shame is honor. And so honoring yourself, honoring myself for those moments, right? Like I too, I, I too experimented with boys and, um, but I was also a, a, a survivor of sexual abuse. Mm. I was sexually abused from the age of four to the age of 10. Well, wow. And so there's like all of these conflicting thoughts, especially when I started to come into my sexual identity. Is someone close right? to you? Is someone in church? Mm -hmm. Someone, someone close to me was a family member. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, I started to like, you know, the abuse happened when I was young, when I wasn't in my sexual identity yet. And I didn't know what my identity was. Um, 
there was a lot of shame because I knew that there was something wrong. Like, this isn't right. That this is okay. Like, this is happening behind closed doors. Like, they're telling me that I can't say anything. Like, they're saying that I can get in trouble. We can get in trouble for this. And that felt like, ooh, there's a secrecy in this that feels not okay. And then as I started to develop sexual feelings, I went into, oh my God, like, am I feeling this way because of the abuse? And I started to shame myself for it. Like, how dare you put yourself into that situation? Um, why didn't you say anything to anyone? Um, and now you're gay. You're gay because you're a product of sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and so when I was 10, the sexual abuse stopped. I was 10. And there was um, a boy my age who was uh, my father's friend's son. And we, he like really instigated an experimental relationship of sex. And um, it was fun. You know, you're, I'm coming into my age, right? As a sexual boy. And like, I'm learning that like, oh, if I jack off, like there's this feeling, this sensation that mm-hmm. comes up and that feels really good. Um, and, um, but there's also, I was start starting to understand the politics of what it meant to be gay. And so there was a lot of internalized homophobia that was coming up there. And so there was this piece of, well, this is pleasurable and he wants to do it. And I like doing it, but I'm not gay, but am I gay? Mm-hmm. And so all of these competing layers were coming up and that started to show up when I was in college right? Like the secrecy around things and like having sex with women and then going, being secret and having sex with men and playing into that young part that felt like this is what my life is going to be. It took me years for me to like unleash and let go of the shame, man. Must have been, I know there's like a philosophical piece of like, you know, learning to accept yourself and there's also the somatic piece. Yes. Of the actual shame living inside your, your somatic being. Yeah. And that was a whole journey for me. How, did you do like a somatic technique to try and release the, the energy from your system? So I knew, before I even knew what meditation was, I like started doing breath work on my own. Mm. I was having panic attacks in college. And so I was laying in bed one day and I just knew one day that if I like took several deep breaths and I held my breath really long and then I let it go slowly my heart rate would slow down and I can fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was like practicing breathwork techniques when I was early on in college. Um, oh, gee, you were doing it before. For day. real, dude. Like, yeah, before like breathwork was a yeah. thing, right? Um, or before breathwork was mainstream, yeah. you know? Um, and so I was, I had already learned how to regulate my nervous system through some of these like just natural, intuitive ways of being. Um, and, uh, for shame, I can't quite remember how I started to release it on a, on a somatic level, but I know that for today, when I feel shame, I feel shame behind my heart and it starts to feel like pressure. And then it starts to spread up in my head and I feel it up in my head and I feel it in my eyes. Um, and when I feel that, my somatic practice around feeling any intense emotions that don't serve me in a moment when it's not like a survival situation, I need it. Um, especially with shame. Um, I'm with it. I honor it, right? Just I'm honoring the shame, honoring myself, I'm feeling it, I'm touching it, I'm breathing it. I'm also visualizing it move through and out of the crown of my head. 
and then I'm feeling my body regulate and slow down. And um, I don't experience shame all that often these days. Nice. Um, and so it feels, um, I feel a little out of touch with it these days. Um, it comes up in small ways where I feel like I have said something that I probably shouldn't have said. Like maybe a word had slipped some way or maybe I had said something to offend someone and it comes up in those little ways. Um, but in, in those times, I just have that practice of like just noticing it. Yeah. How is it sitting in my body right now? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the theses I have, spiritual theses I have on, on our existence is that, you know, if we're healers, which, you know, you are helping people, that our deepest wounds are the teachers to be the healer in a way that like whatever, you know, I, I, my deepest wounding is in, is in relationships, uh, from abandonment issues when I was a kid. Um, and I'm the best at teaching about that. I'm the best at helping people with that. Um, because I just had to, the school of life gave me, gave me a PhD in that, in that department. So it's how has what you've been through, um, influenced your skills as a, as a coach or helping people? Like how did that experience, what did that experience help you with in terms of helping others? Hey there, I'm going to give you a break to digest all of this amazing information. And in this break, if you like what you're listening to, please rate and review the podcast. Thank you. I think through my life experience, I've learned compassion. I think that's the deepest thing, man. Compassion and empathy, right? Compassion is knowing that I struggle and you struggle and we all struggle and my struggle is no bigger than your struggle. Your struggle is no bigger than my struggle, right? There's no worse struggle is struggle. Yeah. Right. And so I can't quantify or qualify your struggle compared to mine. I was, ta- I was talking about this with my sister. She was, she was, um, she was, she has some, all love to her, but she has some victim issues in, in yeah. her mind. And she was trying to like trump her trauma to other people. I mm. told her nervous systems don't give a fuck about, yes. about what level of trauma it's, right. it's completely dependent on the sensitivity and the development of your nervous system. Like that doesn't give a fuck. It's not discriminatory towards a level yes. of trauma. Like someone could have been like, you know, gang sexually assaulted all the time and someone else had a smaller trauma, yes. but their nervous system made it crazier. So that's validating importance. It's good. You have that. Right. Yeah. And so this compassion piece is really important because as I've won, started to own myself and accept myself and started to learn that everyone else that I cared and loved accepted me too, that I can also start to practice self-compassion for the times where I did mess up or I struggled. And that allowed me to have, to build my empathy part, the part of me that says, wow, Lucas, you're struggling and let me imagine myself. Let me imagine what you might go through. And I can imagine that and I can feel while I can feel the hurt. I can feel the pain in all that. And, um, it's through these experiences, like all of these rock bottom moments that I've had in my life, right? The sexual abuse, the alcohol, the drug use, the coming out, my parents divorce, all of these adverse childhood experiences in my life were incredible teachers for me because I get to see that I was just a young person that was surviving and I fucking survived. (laughs) Like I fucking made it through all of that. I made it. And so being able to revisit these younger parts and say, you did your best. 
and you did whatever you need to do to survive, thank you. Thank you for doing that. And it's really thanking my nervous system, right? Like, thank you, body, for like knowing how to protect your myself. Mm-hmm. Thank you, body, for learning how to freeze in those moments where you couldn't do anything to get out of danger. Thank you, body, for f- getting the heck out of dangerous situations or fighting yeah. in dangerous situations. That's what were those moments that, um, that gave me this bigger perspective of what life is. How is your conception of masculinity, what it means shifted the more you've come out and accepted yourself? Cause you know, for a lot of, you know, for presenting as this macho man or a straight man, your conception of what, you know, I'm on issues with, with what, what men think masculinity is in the sense that like, you know, it's just observed nowadays is, you know, stoicism and, and just uh, being like hard and, and tough and all this stuff and not being able to be vulnerable. How has your definition of masculinity shifted the more you've kind of accepted who you are? What do, what do you see it as now? Well, I think that's a really interesting question because in my work, I don't really play into masculine or feminine. Okay. Yeah. Hot, hot take. Um, Tell me more. Well, I think to your point around like, um, like compassion and struggling, like our nervous system doesn't care about masculine or feminine. Like my nervous system doesn't care whether or not I'm being purposeful or penetrative or, or open mm-hmm. or like it doesn't have that kind of language, right? What I really focus on is can I regulate and soften my body in moments where I feel stress, right? And maybe it's like your masculine is up and maybe you come more into your feminine to soften yourself a bit, right? But I don't use that language okay. in my work, you know, and um, I really use the language of like upregulation or activation in feeling like in a fight or flight mode or down regulation or a hypo activation in a freeze. Yeah, what's your, you know, I, I use that language. I'm trying to have an you know, open mind and seeing if I'm yeah. maybe could, could use, not use it. What, what have you seen shift the more you've not used that language and in, in, in helping other people and in, in your own body as well? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I'm not saying that masculine and feminine don't have a place. I respect it. Right? I love all that work. I, I think it's really fascinating to me. Um, it's just not my audience. Okay. Yeah. My audience is, and, and, and it's partly because it's the work that I do. It's really body based and science based and data driven. Right. And so using terms that m- the layman might find accessible for them. I think sometimes it's interesting because I think sometimes in the men's workspace, it's like it's polarized a bit with mm-hmm. like language we use, yeah, you know, sure. and like, there's like one side that's like, here's like the masculine feminine. Right. And then the other side is like alpha beta, you know, and then like right in the middle, I feel like is where I stand. It's okay. like, you know, I don't use the alpha beta. I don't use the masculine feminine. I don't use, I use like, let's come into the body and let's sing what's happening in your nervous system right now. Um, let's talk about, let's heal these parts that feel frozen in your body. Um, but I think if we come back to that and I kind of like take in like how, um, I could shift the masculine into my, my realm, I would see that as like taking action or fighting, right? Like a fight response is a really beautiful response that we need to complete a journey or to complete a trauma. Um, oftentimes when people are, have trauma in their life that are inescapable traumas, right? And this ranges from like being pinned down and being raped to being in an unsafe household where they couldn't leave their parents. When that happens, we go into a freeze 
and our bodies go in what most people would call like a shutdown, right? And it's a very low parasympathetic state in our bodies, and we just don't know what to do. Kind of like deer in headlights, like Ugh, don't know what to do. And this is where a lot of our coping mechanisms come up. So where my coping <laughs> mechanisms came up of like I'm just going to sit in front of a computer and jerk off, or I'm gonna play video games, or I'm going to numb out and smoke some weed, or I'm going to drink alcohol. Like these are all these coping mechanisms to help me come back or to dissociate more out of my body, right? Which is what a freeze is. Freeze is a dissociation, an out-of-body experience. If I were to take in more of like the masculine energy, uh, the masculine language around it, I would say that in the masculine, we are fighting towards something. We are um, purposeful in this. We are fighting for what's right. We're standing up for what's right. We're standing up for our truth. We are setting boundaries. We're saying no to people. We are, um, um, we are purposeful in our action. And the, in, in my world, one of the best ways to melt a free state is to take small, imperfect action in our lives. What do you mean? Give me an example. So let's say, for instance, um, let me bring an example for myself. So because I grew up as a people pleaser and I fawned a lot, which is another survival response that you might be familiar with. Fawn is a hybrid response of freeze and um, flight. Um, and um, that fawn response came up for me because um, my parents were getting a divorce and I wanted to feel safety. And the only way that I could feel safety is to comfort both my parents. Even though that that felt unsafe with me or even though that I didn't want to do that. But in my comforting them, they showed me love. They showed me affection. Mm -hmm. And so I learned at a really young age, if I do what I think people want for me, then I'll get safety. Mm -hmm. I'll get nourishment. I'll get a roof over my head. No one will leave me. Mm -hmm. And so that developed into this being of I'm conflict averse, don't like conflict. I'm a people pleaser. You can throw me around. You can do whatever you want with me. You can say whatever you want with me and it doesn't faze me. These days, as I work with being a more of a fighter in my life, which is accessing my anger, which is a normal emotion. It's a very beautiful emotion. It's an emotion where um, it is a guardian of our boundaries, right? Anger is a guardian of our boundaries where I set a boundary and I say no, or I step in and I say the hard things. I have the hard conversation with my husband. I bring up a hard topic in our relationship. And so for me these days, um, stepping into the fight in my relationships oftentimes looks like saying no in those relationships. It oftentimes looks like this is my boundary and you're not stepping over this boundary. And that helps me melt my freeze. Mm -hmm. And a small, the way that I started working with this was um, just saying no to everything, really. Even if it felt right, like just practicing my no. Like, you want to go grab coffee? No. You want to go out for a drink? No. You want to come sit with me? No. Can I hold your hand? No. And just for me to practice the no gave me the ability to really feel into what does my no really feel like in my body? And what does my yes 
really feel like in my body. Yeah. <clears throat> Branching off of that, what you're saying is, is completely valid. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, one thing I've, I've been sitting with is, it's a tough one. Let's see if we can find an answer to it. That when intense anger comes up, that, as you said, it's like a, a need to set a boundary. The work for me has been logically deducting when it's justified to leak onto someone else. Yeah. To be like, okay, is this just my, you know, yes. my wounding or my trauma, my shadow, or is it something that actually needs conversation and, um, you know, boundary setting? So, what, how, how, what's the line you come to there? How can you recognize in yourself, is this justified? Is this something I have to use to create conversation or, or dialogue with someone, or is this just my shit? Yeah, anger is something that I work with with a lot of men. It comes up a lot in in my space um, because there's there's ang- like like all emotions, it's on a spectrum, right? Let's say anger is the umbrella emotion, and on the low intensity side is irritability and annoyance. That's anger. Yeah. On the high intense side, it's rage. Like yeah. I'm gonna like. I'm going to defend myself and I'm going to hurt someone. I'm going to hurt something. I'm going to kill this thing in front of me. Right in the middle, healthy anger is being assertive. And that assertiveness doesn't mean I'm screaming at you. This assertive just means that I'm putting my foot down and I'm setting this boundary. Being assertive can also be soft. Like, you can't do that to me. I'm not allowing you to do that to me. That can be soft, right? And so... With anger, I think we get, I see guys who either feel anger and then shut down and then dissociate. That's where I go. That's like my default anger, especially in conflict. Oh, I feel the the bubbling come up. I feel the rage come up and I want to say it. I want to say the things and uh, no, shut down. Because if I say the thing, this person's going to leave me or I'm going to get hurt by them. Right. On the other side, which I can get to, is you say all the things and I'm going to build, 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 build. Here's this rage that's coming up. It's coming up, coming up. And I'm just going to unleash. And I'm going to say all the things that are going to hurt you. And I'm going to push all the buttons. And I'm going to be mean. And I'm going to just like be very, very angry and say all the hurtful things. Yeah. That's my rage when it comes out. Right. And that's the result of constantly ignoring what batteries you need. Yes. And then it adds up. Uh, right. Yeah. That's a result of building resentment because you couldn't say all the things. Yeah, that's that one of the dangers of the, of the nice guy. Yes. Um, is that, you know, they have no idea how to set boundaries and then they yes. swallow it, swallow it, swallow it. And the ones that end up, you know, fucking smacking their wife or yep. yelling at someone. It just resulted that. Right. Or killing themselves. Yeah. Right. They just can't take it. Yeah, they can't much. take it anymore. They're too nice to express to someone. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, anger is needed in our lives, man. Yeah. Right. Anger is what sets our boundaries. It's the guardian of our boundaries. It's how, how we protect what's important to us. We need anger to set our boundaries to be assertive, but we also need anger if someone or something is going to attack you. Right. If someone's going to intrude into your house, you don't want to freeze. You want to step in there with anger and you want to fight for your life and you want to fight for your family. Yeah. That's where it's like really appropriate, right? Yeah. You're, you're out in the middle of the woods, right? And you hear something and there's a predator that's coming at you. You have a few options here, right? Your body is going to immediately go, here's options. Can I take this thing? Can I defeat this thing? 
can I run away from this thing or not? Right? If you can fight this thing and this thing's coming at you, guess what your body's going to want to do? It's going to fight it. And you're going to need that rage, all that energy to fight this thing. Right? But if you look at it and you're like, that's a, that's a lion. <laughs> and that, I know that thing is going to kill me. You're going to need that anger to like, you're going to need that fear to get the heck out of there. Yeah. And to your, to an inner child, something that, something that resembles their trauma is the line. You know, so it's like, um, whatever triggering me, maybe if you have, you know, if we have abandonment issues, if, uh, I sense that a partner could be abandoning and it becomes that line and the anger is, is, is taken over. Right. Uh, but validating what you were saying earlier of, you know, the, the, the benefits of acknowledging the anger when it comes up through being assertive. I'm, I'm currently dating someone who she is tapped into an extreme. This, this may sound insane to men, but it's my experience. She notices when I'm, I have a t- any ounce of anger, even if I don't display it, she feels it immediately. Um, and she's like, what, she's like, what's going on? What's going on here? And to most men, that'd be fucking a pain in the ass because a lot of men feel that way all the time and they swallow it. And I was that man. Um, I let it out maybe halfway to the, to the bar and I'd be like, I'd say something. But what, what this experience has shown me with her is that when she says it, I immediately, I can't, she sees I can't lie about it. I immediately say, this is the case. I'm assertive about it. Not making her like shift to her, her way of being, just saying this is what's happening. And I feel like I, I've never felt this free in a relationship. Yeah. I've never felt. And it just, through her being that sensitive, yeah. it's shown me like, holy shit. Like, uh, you know, as, as men, especially because you know, we have a tendency to have more anger, to you know, testosterone. It's that like, um, we have to, and also more capability to fucking damage someone. We right. have to be able to acknowledge that when it, when it comes up. Right. And beautiful because it's like, there's a young part of you that's like, I feel seen. Yeah. Oh, you're seeing my anger yeah. and you're not running away from me. Yeah. You're not scared of my anger. Yeah. Big. Yeah. Right. And so there's like, there might be this younger part of you that can finally release yeah. and be like, my anger is okay. Like it doesn't yeah. have to scare anyone. It doesn't scare anyone and it's valid and it's okay. This experience is for me. I don't know if many men share this too. Like my mom was super sensitive. So if I got angry, she just couldn't handle it. She'd be like, not with me. Like, do not ever say that to me. If I was, and then if my dad saw it, he'd come in like a bull being like, don't fucking, you know, say this to your mom and shit. And I couldn't be angry to him because if I was angry to my dad, he would come back with like fucking a tornado of yes. anger. So validating your point, there's no space for me to express anger at the kid and that, and that transfers. Yeah. That's was, same, was that similar to you? And is that a similar oh experience God. for men? Same experience for me, same experience for many men, right? So my experience growing up was any really hard emotion that my parents didn't have the capacity to hold, right? Sadness, scared, anger, sadness, fear, anger. My parents couldn't, they didn't have the capacity and nervous system to hold that. And they projected their own stuff onto me. Right. And so with, when those emotions came up, they didn't feel safe enough in their bodies to say, this is okay for me. This is okay for him. His emotions are okay. What happened was this is unsafe for me. And so I need to let him know that he's making me unsafe. And so how do they make, how do they discipline me with that? With actual physical discipline. Hmm. They would meet my anger with their own anger and with physical abuse. And then they would throw me in my room and say, be by yourself and close your door. I don't want to see you again. Mm-hmm. And so what did that teach me about my anger, my sadness and fear? That taught me that if I felt my anger, sadness or fear, I would not be accepted. I would get hurt, maybe even physically hurt, definitely emotionally hurt. And then I would be isolated. I would not be loved. And so I learned at a young age that if I feel anger, sadness, or fear, I'm unlovable. Yeah. How can we 
feel these things and not leak their shadow onto people we love? Yeah. Like, how do we cultivate that? Yeah. Well, what's beautiful is like, I think our, the people that we love are our greatest mirrors. Yeah, for sure. Right. And so one, having the somatic awareness of what's happening in our bodies. This is why I love this work that I do is like ha- developing a somatic awareness. So developing a physical awareness of our bodies, interoception, coming inside of my body and saying, I can feel my heart rate. I can feel the pressure in my chest. I can feel, um, I can feel vibration coming up my body, right? Having that somatic awareness and developing it in a, and being very um, sensitive to it allows us then to acknowledge what is my experience right now. And perhaps I'm feeling pressure in my chest and that pressure in my chest often means I'm feeling anxiety, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm feeling anxiety right now. Cool. I also have the emotional vocabulary to say that I'm feeling anxiety. If I know that I'm feeling anxiety, I also know that if I take deep breaths, I can lower the intensity of that anxiety. I can regulate, yeah. self-regulate my body. That's what we're talking about. That One thing I know is I try and tell people in my experience is that when you get triggered in a relationship or any situation, when you blame someone else for the way you feel, you lose all your power. Yes. Like when you say, this person made me angry, this person made me this, yes. they could have done something that triggered it. But why I'm saying that is that not to be, not to you know be a victim, but it's like, when you own your anger is yours. Yes. Like someone has done something fucked up and you own it and you feel it. Yes. You gain your power back. You have the space to process it and release it into the thing. When you immediately blame someone for it, you lose the autonomy you have to deal with your own emotions. And then you end up, you know, leaking it out. Yeah. You step into agency, yeah. right? You take responsibility for your emotions. But there's this piece here that you mentioned earlier about how the person that you're seeing is, um, you know, very aware and very sensitive to your, your, your body and how you respond. Like maybe even like you're like an unconscious for you. Right. But we, but she can see it. Mm-hmm. Right. We are very intuitive creatures. Like we could sense danger like that mm-hmm. before our mind could even interpret what's happening. Yep. Right? And so we have the ability to look at someone's facial expression or their body language and go, okay, this person either feels safe or unsafe. And so what perhaps might be happening for this woman is that she sees your body language and she goes, Oh, that looks a little bit unsafe right there. Yeah. What is that? <laughs> yeah. You know, in like a softness, right? Of course, she's, she's done so much inner work to be able to like not project that and say, Oh, that's scary. I need to back away, but more, let me lean into this. And also, women curious. are, you know, evolutionary trained to detect that. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So we're evolved and that's what helps us connect with each other. Right. And so for men, when we are feeling this anger, when we're feeling fear or we're feeling shame, whatever it is, and we can own it, just like what you were saying, and somatically feel it. And we can also sense into how our emotions are impacting the people that we love and seeing that, oh, wow, they feel scared right now with this emotion that's coming up. We can then learn to regulate ourselves in that motion, in those moments and take care of ourselves. And that might look like, I need a timeout. Like, I just need some space. Like, mm-hmm. let me just take some deep breaths. Yeah. And it's having the awareness of the awareness, right? So it's being aware that, oh, this is a moment where I'm getting angry and I can project my anger and blame you for my anger. Or that hasn't worked for me in the past. And so I have awareness of that. Let me actually just step back and take a deep breath. Let me go into a different room and slow down. Do you have any recent examples in, or over the past year, over, you know, in your relationship where you've had trigger or a tough moment and you've handled in a, in a correct way in terms of like communicating that that anger to your partner yes and ha- having it all worked out 
Yeah. Give me an example of that. So, I mean, I think that many, in many long-term relationships, communication is like a very standard, like baseline. This is what our conflict is, is often about communication. Yes, sir. Yeah. And, um, my husband and I have been together for 12 years. And so, and we've done a lot of work, especially in these last five years of our relationship, especially around our own anger. Um, my husband has a really healthy relationship with his anger. And for a really long time, his assertiveness or his ability to set himself and be forward, like, ooh, that scared me a lot. And before, before we continue, I just want to address that. What makes someone have healthy? Why does he have a, what makes him have a healthy relationship? I, part of it is he accepts it. Okay. He owns it. Okay. That's right? a, uh, cool. Right, and part it. of it is like, he does, he's not scared of his anger. Okay. I'm, I get scared of my anger because I was taught to be scared of my anger because my anger taught me that I would be unlovable. And so, um, this was uh, like maybe four or five months ago, we were in a conflict, some usual thing, like one of us said something and it rubbed us the wrong way, you know, and, um, we were in it just like conversing and it was getting to that place where like, okay, if we go a little bit further, this is going to turn into something else that it doesn't need to be. And I, and I can feel it in my body. Like I could feel the blood rising. I could feel the heat coming. I could feel my eyes, my eyebrows coming down and getting this anger face. Um, and it was in that moment where I saw his reaction, where his eyebrows started to do the same thing. And he was getting ready to a tough fight too, where I just stepped back, took a huge deep breath, slowed my body down. And then he took a deep breath with me and we just stood there. We just looked at each other and we just breathed together. And then I intentionally lowered the tone of my voice. I slowed down the speed of my voice. And what that does for his nervous system is it helps his nervous system go, okay, let's slow down here too. Like this is soothing. Let's be here. And, um, and then we asked for a break. And then we came back and we just shared. We have this thing where we say, I feel angry. When you said this, I feel angry. And what it reminded me of is this time when my mom locked me in my room and told me I was wrong for mm -hmm. doing this thing. That's what it reminded me of. It's not you. Yeah, just it's taking full autonomy and ownership yes. over your, yeah. your doing. Yeah, and part of it is it's not you. Yeah. Right? Like acknowledging it, like this isn't you. It's not about you. Yeah, this is really about. Yeah, what's tricky to also is also your responsibility to help create safety. That's what people miss too. Is that like even though it's not your fault or someone else's fault, like it's kind of on you to help create a safe space mm -hmm. for them to always share and be vulnerable and not like you know castigate them or mm -hmm. get get mad at them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that takes a lot of work, man. Yeah. Right, but it takes these relationships as mirrors to show us, like you look angry right now. Like what's wrong with you? And we might be unconscious of that, like totally unconscious. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> There's nothing wrong. Yeah. And to have mirrors like that in our lives to reflect is so valuable. Yeah, what you said earlier when you were kind of both breathing, it showed me that you were kind of both um, co-regulating yes. first. Why I say that is that, you know, I had some, I had a somatic therapist telling me that, you know, this, this quote, like your state procedure, your story that whatever you're feeling internally will reflect your thoughts and your, and your words. So if you're in an angry state, angry thoughts, angry words. If you're, and if you enter an uh, argument in that state in a relationship, it's like poof, this, this tornado. But if you choose to first co-regulate, get safety in the nervous system, that 
language and those thoughts will calm down in, in a way. So that could be honestly like an awesome step that people should, cult- should consider doing is if both of you like see that, if you see, if you see both eyebrows raise up, just being like, okay, we're both angry. Let's co-regulate. Just try and feel safe and then go from there. Co-regulation is what teaches us how to self-regulate too, right? And many of us didn't have parents in our lives that knew how to co-regulate with us. Like so what, what, is, does, what does co-regulation mean? Co-regulation is our ability to help someone feel safe within, our, within yeah. themselves, right? Their nervous systems primarily to feel safe enough for them to be in whatever their state is, to be in whatever emotion there is, to allow their bodies to release and to deactivate the high intense emotions that they feel. And most of us didn't have parents that said, hey, Mike, it's okay for you to be angry. It's okay for you to be sad. Come here, let me hold you. For many people in my generation, we had, especially in for immigrant families, our immigrant families who were coming from war, or coming from famine, who were escaping governments, they came from survival states. And so all they knew to do was to survive. Same with my parents. Right? My parents only knew how to survive. And so their ability to self-regulate themselves, it was non-existent. They didn't know how to self-regulate. And so how could they teach me how to self-regulate because they couldn't self-regulate themselves? And so one of the greatest tools, one of the greatest skills that we can teach our partners or even our kids is learning how to co-regulate. And the, the way that we start to do that is first by coming inward and acknowledging that we have a body and that we can feel our body. Yeah, being on the opposing end of co-regulation, so you see someone being vulnerable and, and displaying emotions, what should the person on opposite end do to co-regulate? It, for, for me, my answer, I'm curious what yours is. The biggest thing for me is just to be present with what they're feeling and not resist it or, or you know, say like, why are you feeling this way? Or trying to analyze my mind and, and blaming them, just being like, pr- like empathetically being present with their sensations. Yeah. That's what I do. But what, what, how, what can that person do to co-regulate yeah. in terms of them being, them being on the opposite end of the, opposite end of the person processing their emotion yeah so someone right here like let's say for instance you're dysregulated yeah and i was like what the fuck you do this for it's kind of going going a little like not blaming you be feeling super emotional Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so my breath is going to be key to me and my body is going to be key to me my breath and my body are always my anchor which means it's always going to be here which means it's always present and so there's going to be probably moments where my mind is going to get distracted like oh my god this feels unsafe or oh my god i want to come save you right but all i need to do is just come back to my body and come inward and as I do that, I feel more safe in my body. And our body is going to exchange information with each other. And if your body reads safety with my body, your body is going to read safety with your body. Your body is going to feel more safe. But along with that is affirmations. Like, you're not wrong. I understand. It makes sense that you feel that way. It is head nodding. Right. It is leaning in to this. It is staying open in this conversation. Right. It is, um, what Peter Levine would call being an empathetic witness. Right. I understand what you're going through and I can put myself in your shoes and I can feel your suffering. I can feel your, your struggles and you're not wrong for it. You're not a bad person for it. And it's not about me trying to fix you and solve your problems. It's just me being an empathetic witness. I'm listening and I'm accepting everything that you say. In your relationship, in your experience, or maybe as a coach, what's the difference in when you notice someone doing that, dropping in versus just matching their energy, being like, ah, you know, kind of getting emotionally stunted like them. What's the difference in communication? You mean in like relationships, like two people together? Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
when there is a couple that has healthy regulation in their relationship, it's going to be a calm and slow. Like there could be activation. That's totally normal, right? Maybe the voices get raised, but there's also going to be a, um, a rhythm in that relationship. Like maybe there's a little bit of activation and their voices get raised and maybe we get tense. And then there's also going to be a, okay, there's a settling here and let's slow down. And then maybe someone says something wrong or maybe they said it in a certain way. And then there's going to be another activation, right? When we see two people go at it where they're totally activated, they're up here all the time. It's just going to continue to build and build and build and build. And then that anger, right? Just becomes that anger is never going to be heard. It's just going to be bouncing off a, off a wall. And when anger isn't being heard, develop, that develops a resentment in the relationship. And resentment becomes toxic in a relationship. And it starts to become petty about things. And then we start to scoreboard the relationship and say, I did this for you. Why don't you do this for me? And there's like comparison that happens. And so when there's two highly activated individuals in a relationship that can't settle down, or if one person can't settle down, right? We just need one of them to like really settle down and encourage safety in the relationship. It's going to just continue to be constrictive and tight. And there's not going to be a lot of openness or even like healthy discussion around what's going to, what's happening. Yeah. It's crazy to me is that the vast majority, I mean this literally, I'm not, generali- not generalizing, um, the vast majority of relationships have no idea about any of this, that they just are stuck in those patterns of having no idea regulation means, having no idea about, about any of this. And that's a, that's a result of the culture. What I'm saying that is that once you do this work, it can become isolating in the sense that for me, it's been tough in my family settings. Um, like my family bonds over dysregulation. Yes. Like the at the dinner table, they're talking about gossiping they're talking about all of to him i understand it they're talking about things just bring up this conflict i'm just sat there like I, I, this is boring to me like i ha- I cannot connect with this like, this is like it's weird how people can feel safe in in unsafety in in being around people who are triggered and, and yelling at each other i've learned just to feel sit there and be like this is not mm-hmm. my this is not for me and it's hard for me to connect and that's i think one of the costs of the work and i hope it changes the culture changes but it's hard for me to connect with most people just because they don't know how to feel safe and safety. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for me to develop relationships with them, especially my family. Has it been your experience too? Like as the more you kind of locked in your somatic being and your, and your groundedness that just being out in this insane world, it can be tough to connect to people sometimes. Absolutely. 100%. That's my experience. And I love my energy and I love connecting with people. And so I'm going to try my damn hardest to connect yeah. with you somehow, you yeah. know, and I'm going to ask you a hard question. And I'm going to try to open you up and it might feel, um, and obviously always with consent, especially with my family and with new people that I'm meeting. I always say, you don't have to answer this, but can I ask you a hard question here? Yeah. Right. And that hard question can range from like, you know, what are you most proud of? Like, what are your dreams? Or like, where have you struggled the most this year? Right. And, um, I understand like how hard that is with our family members too, because we've developed patterns in our relationship that are hard to break. Mm-hmm. And for me, when I come back with my family, it's like, you know, I love my family. I so love, hanging out Just with my family. Straight. I love, my yeah. Family. Yeah. <laughs> I love, I love hanging out with my family. I love hanging out with my cousins, especially. Right. Um, and when we, when we all get together, there's always like a pattern that we all step into and it's like a lot of fun. And it's sometimes it's very superficial, but there are moments where I can pull one of them away and just have a, a sit down and just have a conversation and a real conversation. But that's my responsibility. I feel like, you know, it's also a little bit selfish because I want to feel fulfilled in that. Yeah. This question, this question just came to mind 
I think it's useful. I think people who struggle the most in my experience are people who are aware, somatically aware and sensitive, or dating people who are not. Yeah. Um, how do you, what's the best way to communicate to people like that to make them aware? Like, for example, if you were, let's say your family member did something unsavory and was triggering you and you sat them down, what's the best way to make someone aware or, or co-regulate who has no idea what any of that is? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I would first start with how I felt, right? Like, Justin, when you said this, it hurt my feelings and I felt my heart rate beating and I felt the sense of betrayal. And what betrayal feels like to me is like right now I'm feeling the betrayal. I'm feeling the shakiness in my hands. I'm feeling myself want to run away from you. I'm feeling all that. And like really just being the example of what it's like to come inward and feel that response. And then also asking, does that make sense to you? Does that, do you understand? Do you understand that? And then asking, what is your experience like? What do you feel? Being somatically aware is a different kind of intelligence, man. Mm-hmm. And we have to practice it and we have to develop a language around it. And if we don't have people in our lives that have the language, then we're not going to learn that language on our own. And so as, um, as a healer, as a person that's in this world, I try to talk this way as much as I, I can because it educates people on a completely different level and it helps them see themselves in a different way. It helps them understand themselves in a different way. I've been doing somatic work for the last six years and it like totally touched my heart because I would do this kind of work with my husband, like ask him how he feels and where he feels that in his body. Um, and my husband is a retired physician. And so he's like very like heady and lo- like logical yeah. and he's like, ah, whatever this woo woo kind of stuff, <laughs> you know, but just recently in the last few years, he's been really more in touch with his body. You know, as a physician, he's like living up in his head and his intellect for most of his life, his most of his career. He found safety and success in that. But coming into his body, he's noticed how much more softer he can be and how much more grounded he can be. And the, I remember the very first time I sh- he asked me how I was feeling. He said, I'm feeling anxious. And he asked me, where do you feel that in your body? And it like blew me away. And I was like, oh my God, like you get it. Like, you get it. Yes, thank you for asking me where I felt that in my body. I feel it in my chest and it feels tight. And then now I'm feeling scared, but I'm also feeling grateful for you. Right. And so, um, it takes time to massage it. And I think it's a necessary language that so many of us mm-hmm. need to learn because we are living in a dysregulated world, man. No well, shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and we're seeing it in our politics. We're seeing it in our communities. We're seeing it in um, pharmaceuticals we're seeing it in like our health we're seeing it in our soil we're seeing it in like yeah, for sure. Even one thing i often bring up a theme i try and talk about is division just like um division in this country or around people over certain ideas and for me i used to be super divisive and triggered and young people on the opposite side of politics all this stuff and for me i realized that like it's pretty hard to be divisive and angry all the time if you have regulated regulated nervous system yeah like I, you can believe whatever I think is opposite of what I believe. And because I have safety, I won't get triggered. I'll just be like, yes. oh, I'll be curious. Like, yeah. okay, like what's going on? Let's try and find some common ground, but just that everything starts with the nervous system. But question I want to end with, which is something I've been thinking about that is there a cause to being too aware of the way you feel and over identifying with the sensations? Like I've been super aware of my feelings. I was like, yeah, like extra sensitive. And it gets to a point where it's like, okay. Am I focusing on my feelings too much? Am I just, cause I'm always aware of everything. What's that line? Is, like, is there a line? Is it okay? Do you think to always be aware of your feelings or does it get to a point where it's too much? You're too like ab- absorbed into your emotions. 
I don't think you can feel into your feelings too much. Okay. I think, I think what's valuable here is knowing how to regulate going into those motions, right? So being able to like, let's say for instance, we have um, an unhealthy relationship with anger and we're working with our anger and we feel anger. And um, in this, let's say for instance, this situation you've angered, I've felt anger in this situation. Now what's probably inappropriate is for me to like show that anger and like get into that rage place, right? But I'm feeling that emotion. Like that's, I'm protecting, right? You said something to me that's like hurting me or you're going to like steal my shit. Like I need to protect, but right now it's probably not the right situation to like, you know, show that anger. What I, what I, what I hope for people is that we become so somatically aware that we can start to regulate and modulate our emotions when it's necessary and even say, Oh, I'm feeling anger right now and it's inappropriate in this situation. I'm going to work on that in a, in a little later. What I also hope for people is this beautiful connection of our mind and our body, the logic and the rational mind working really cleanly and fluidly with our somatic intelligence and, and the intelligence of our body where most people are in dysregulation is they feel dysregulation in the body. They feel a threat or a perceived threat, right? Their colleague, their boss, their partner. And that goes up to their brain. They interpret it and they go, this is danger. Oh my God, fight, flight, or freeze. Where I hope people get as they get more interested in somatic work is, oh, I can actually feel that activation. And here I am going to fight, flight, and freeze. Let me use my rationale. You are not a threat to me. You're not going to take my life. Okay. Slow my nervous system down. Okay, that's different. That feels different. And so what I hope is a more fluid communication between the mind, the rational, the intelligence, and with the somatic feeling part of mm-hmm. our body. I agree. Thank you so much for everything, man. I, I deeply appreciate your vulnerability and your dedication to this work, especially the somatic awareness. You know, I have many people on my podcast, but I feel this like this, this, this gusto, this passion for the somatic level of things. I think that's the most important piece of the work is the somatic work, um, in my experience. Uh, where can people find you uh, if they want to learn more about you? I'm on Instagram. Cool. It's my name, Mike.Sagoon. Also, um, my website, www.mikesagoon.com. Awesome. Thank you, man. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast as well as rate and review. Thank you for listening.